0: Our scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we continue in the Gospel of John this evening, we come to a moment of transition in the Gospel. And John is very careful how he, how he weaves together his narrative and how he tells the story of the gospel. And as you're reading through the gospel, we've, we've come through John chapters 1 to 4. And you'll remember at the beginning of John chapter 2, Jesus, uh, John says that Jesus was in Cana of Galilee. And there he was at a wedding and he turned water into wine. And then we read about how he later went to the temple and then he met with Nicodemus while in Jerusalem. And then he went on his way through Samaria And he met with the woman at the well, and then he returned to Cana of Galilee, where he met the official and healed the official's son. But John has made that a distinct unit of narrative. It begins in Cana of Galilee, it ends in Cana of Galilee. And now he is back in Jerusalem. And there's a transition in the narrative, because as we have been following the account of the life of Jesus, he's been performing signs and he's been meeting with people. You know, he met with Nicodemus. He met with the woman at the well. He met with the official. And all of these people that Jesus is meeting with are seeking something. And Nicodemus was seeking knowledge. He wanted to know, you, you were obviously a teacher sent from God. And Nicodemus saw the signs that Jesus was performing. And then the woman at the well was seeking water. She was thirsty. But then she found the one who offered her living water. And then the official was seeking healing for his son. They're all seeking someone. Someone. And some of them know something about Jesus. The woman at the well didn't know anything about Jesus. But as Jesus meets with them, he makes himself known to them. He reveals himself to them. And as we are reading along in the gospel, Jesus is being revealed to us too. And we need to remember that very important verse at the beginning of the gospel. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And then John says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the signs that Jesus has been performing are revealing. They're manifesting his glory. And in his conversations with people, he's making himself known. And John tells us at the end of the gospel that he has written these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing in him, have eternal life. And we see that theme, too, that throughout the gospel, Jesus is offering life. He's giving life, eternal life. Now, I said this is a moment of transition because, yes, again, there's a man who is seeking something. He's seeking the water of Bethesda. He's looking to be healed. But then we have the Jews, and that's a reference to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they've seen the signs. They've heard Jesus but their response isn't faith, and their response isn't repentance. They see the signs. They hear what Jesus says. They understand what Jesus says. They say, they say here, he's saying that he is God. He's equal to God. But they respond with anger. They respond with violence. They were persecuting him, and then John says they were seeking to kill him. And there's a certain irony here. The one who came to bring life the one who gives the waters of life, the one who promises eternal life, they're trying to kill him. And as we read through the gospel now, we'll we'll see again and again there, there are those who now oppose Christ. They see the signs, they hear him speaking, and they turn against him. And it's a warning to us that as we are reading through John's gospel, yes, we are praying that God's spirit would give us eyes to behold the glory of the Son. Come to know him more fully more deeply. But we're also praying that God's spirit would open our hearts and soften our hearts, that we would submit to the son, that we would turn to him in faith, that our faith in him would grow, that we would have hearts that submit to him in repentance. And there's a warning that we may see and understand and yet reject. And so this is a new theme that enters the gospel, the theme of opposition and hostility. Now, the religious leaders ask an important question. Who is the man? Who is this man that told you to pick up your your bed and walk? And it's a question that John's gospel has been answering. He's been telling us who this man is. And the identity of the man has been revealed to us. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He's the bridegroom from heaven. He's the temple. He's the one who will die and be raised on the third day. He's the one that gives living water. And here we're told, and and Jesus says in his answer, my father has been working until this day, and I also am working. Who is this man? This is the man who is working just as the father is working. And we're told that this happened on the Sabbath. And yes, as you read through scripture and you read through the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was a day of rest. But it was also a day of not just rest, but restoration. And just think about those two words, rest, but then restoration. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when Moses repeats, he gives the Ten Commandments to the people a second time. When he gives them the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath, he gives a reason for it. And the reason for it is, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And God delivered you from slavery and brought you to this land. And Sabbath was a day, yes, of rest, But it was a day when God's people remember God's restoration, God's salvation. And Jesus is saying here, yes, that's the work of my Father. He's been redeeming and restoring. And I also am redeeming and restoring. And so Jesus on the Sabbath is working Sabbath. He works rest. He works restoration. And as we consider this text this evening, I want us to consider, first of all, the rest of Christ. The restoration of Christ. The Sabbath that we have in Christ. And then secondly, how we enter that rest and how we abide in that rest. Yes, he works that rest. We can't accomplish that rest. We can't accomplish that restoration. It's his work. He's the one working. But we enter that rest by means of repentance. And he does say to the man, get up and walk. But he also says to him, sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. So we enter and abide in that rest through repentance, but also through obedience, obedient faith, because he commands the man, and the man has to respond in obedience. But as we think about obedience, we need to be careful that we don't fall into legalism. And the, the religious leaders, they said, it's not lawful. That's not lawful. And there's an unrest that we can fall into through legalism. So that's what I want us to consider, the the rest that Christ offers and how we enter into and abide in that rest through repentance and through obedience. So first of all, the the rest, the restoration of Christ. And John paints this scene for us. And it's not hard to picture in our mind's eye what Jesus saw when he entered this five-roofed colonnade. And he saw there a multitude of invalids, all of these people lying around the pool of Bethesda. Some of them blind, some of them lame, some of them paralyzed, and we can hear their cries. Some of them crying out for help, some of them just groaning and sighing in their sickness, in their illness. And there's a multitude there. But Jesus sees this one. He sees the one. And he knows. He saw and he knew. He knew that he had been lying there a long time. And he asks him a question. Do you want to be healed? Now, the man receives this question, perhaps as a rhetorical question. Well, of course I want to be healed. Of course. That's why I'm here. There's healing in the waters of Bethesda. That's why I'm here. But he gives an explanation for why he hasn't been healed. Sir, there is no one to help me. There is no man to help me. There's no one to help me get into those waters. And when I try to get into the waters, other people come in. Ahead of me. And so the man cries out and he says, There's no one to help me and I can't get into the waters. Now, just think about this this man in his desperation. On the one hand, no one can help me, there's no man to help me. Now, there is a man who has seen him and knows him. That man is with him now. But he also says, There's no one to help me get into the pool, get into the waters. That's where I need to be. I need to get to those waters. If I can only get to those waters, I'll be healed. And we may not be in the exact circumstance of this man, but we can relate on the one hand to his, his, his desperation to get into that pool. And there he is, year after year, Sabbath day after Sabbath day, just looking at those waters and seeing them stirred up. And he is fixated on those waters. If I just get into that pool, I will be healed. And we can think of our own lives as we think about our own trials and tribulations and we we imagine the solution to those things. You know, some of us are longing to be married and we just think, if only, if only the Lord brought me a husband or he brought me a wife. And we become fixated on marriage. If only, if only I was married. Or sometimes we think of our our careers or uh, a certain position and we're striving to reach this one position. If only I get there. And we're praying for that. And we're longing for that. Or some of us do face chronic illness. We're suffering as this man has suffered. And we're crying out and we think, if only the Lord would heal me from this. And we're looking on that and we become, we become fixated on that. Or think of other things that you've been praying about and you're persevering in prayer. But over time, we, we come to a, a certain conception of how God's going to answer that prayer. It's going to be this way. And we're looking for that. And we're longing for that. And it becomes like the pool of Bethesda. We just want to get into those waters. And we think that's the only answer. That's the only place we'll find healing. If we can get into those waters. But our Lord comes to this man. And he turns the man's attention away from those waters. Look to me. Look to me. I'm the one who will heal you. Don't, don't worry about those waters. Look to me, I'm your healer. I'm the one who will heal you. And there are times when our Lord will see us and he knows us and he will, he will, he'll remove that object that we think that's the solution, that's the answer. He'll remove it. He'll turn our eyes towards him. And we need to look to him and know that he is our healer and listen to his call, listen to his command. But also we can resonate with the cry of this man. There's no one to help me. There's nobody to help me. And especially during this season, we may, we may feel that that's the case. You know, we, we've, had, we've had days, we've had weeks where we're struggling with something. We think there's, nobody knows this. I'm alone in this. I'm abandoned in this. And we, we, we say with this man, there's no one to help me. There's nobody that can come alongside. And the man says, there's no man. There is no man that can help me into the waters. And sometimes we are, we are looking for the strength, the wisdom, the solutions of man. You know, we need a man. We need man to get us to where we need to go. And you can think even of our current circumstances. Many of us are lamenting the decisions of men and the response of men to what's going on around us. But we can fall into the trap of thinking, if only there was a different man and another man. You know, someone else in office, someone else in control, someone else making decisions, then everything would be okay. That's what we're looking for. But the reality for this man is there is no man that could help him. Even if he were to be led into those waters, there's no man that could heal him. But there is one, the Lord Jesus. And as he cries out and says, there's no one to help me, there's nobody that sees me, there's nobody that knows me, well, our Lord saw him. Our Lord knew his circumstance. And our Lord said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And we're told that once he was healed and he got up and he picked up his bed and he walked. Now, we know how the religious leaders responded to that when they saw him walking with his bed. We're going to come to that. But it's significant that the man doesn't even know who Jesus was. And throughout this account, you may have noticed this, there's there's a refrain. This gets repeated. The man who was healed, the man who was healed, the man who was healed. He's always referred to as the man who was healed. And yet the man who was healed doesn't know who the healer was. I don't know who it was that healed me. But he does find his way to the temple. That's interesting. Jesus doesn't find him somewhere else. He finds him in the temple. That's the place to be. But then we're not told that he went and found Jesus and said, oh, you're the one that healed me. Jesus saw him. He knew him. He healed him. But then later, he found him in the temple. I love how John puts that. He found him in the temple. And when he found him, he said, look, you've been healed. See, you're well. But then our Lord confronted the man with something which was a deeper sickness. And we've been praying through that in our prayers. Because our Lord said to him, sin no more. And that man needed healing, not just from his sickness. He needed healing from his sin. And yes, the Lord gave him rest from his sickness. He restored him from his sickness. And he commanded him, get up, take up your bed and walk. But just as our Lord commanded him, get up and walk, having restored him, having healed him. So now he says to him, sin no more. Well, if he commanded him, get up and walk, because he had healed him from his illness. So now, by saying, sin no more, the implication of that is he's restored him from his sin. He's healed him from his sin. He has saved him from his sin. And yes, that man needed to obey the command of our Lord to get up and take up his bed. But he couldn't have done it if he wasn't first healed. And here we see the nature of the relationship between God's saving work and his commands and his his call to obedience. Our Lord commanded that man to get up and to carry his bed. But he couldn't have done that if our Lord hadn't first healed him. And yet, had the man not then obeyed and gotten up and taken up his bed, he may have been healed and still left lying there. And so when he finds him again, and he says, sin no more. That man could not keep that command unless our Lord had freed him from his sins, had saved him from his sins, had restored him from his sins. But just as he wouldn't continue lying on the mat, on his bed, having been healed, so he could not remain in his sins. And so our Lord says, repent, turn away, sin no more. And so as we think of uh, the, the rest of Christ, it's only his redeeming, saving, restorative work that saves us. We can no more be saved from our sins than that man could get up from that bed and pick up the bed and walk. And yet, yeah, our Lord who, gives, who saves us from our sin, who restores us from our sin, then says to us, sin no more. And so, uh, how do we enter the rest of Christ? How do we abide in the rest of Christ, in the restorative work of Christ? It's through repentance. Now, why would that man, having been healed, continue to lay on the mat? Why would he do that? Why would we, who have been saved from our sins, continue in our sin? Why would we continue? And so we enter into the rest of Christ and the restoration of Christ and we abide in his rest and restoration through repentance. And our Lord warns us here as he warned that man, sin no more lest something worse happen to you. Now something worse than being an invalid for 38 years is eternity in hell. And when you read through the book of Revelation and you come to Revelation chapter 14, those who bear the mark of the beast, in other words, those who are unrepentant, those who refuse to put their faith and their trust in the Lamb, in Christ, we're told that they spend an eternity without rest. There is no rest day or night forever and ever. And our Lord warns us, turn from your sin, sin no more, lest something worse happen to you, lest you find that you spend that eternity without rest. Eternal torment, day and night. So we are reminded here that as those who have been saved and restored, we're those who are repentant. And repentance characterizes the Christian. A penitent heart, a humble heart, a heart that is turning away from sin. Now, this does not mean we're perfect. Of course not. But it does mean that we have our eyes fixed on our Savior. That man wasn't focused on the pool anymore. And he hadn't resigned himself to just lying on the mat. He picked it up. He walked. And so we who have been delivered from our sins and found rest and restoration in Christ because he found us. So we turn away from our sins and we keep our eyes fixed on him. But then notice the response of the religious leaders here, the Jews. There's another form of unrest. There's the unrest of unrepentance. But there's also the unrest, the restlessness of legalism. Now, this man had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I did the math. I did 38 times 52. So 38 years times 52, that's 17 or 1976. Let's just call it 2000. 2000 Sabbaths. For 2,000 Sabbaths, he rested. He couldn't work. He rested. He was resting for 2,000 Sabbaths. Now, on this Sabbath day, he was restored. He had entered the rest of Christ, the true Sabbath. And now he picks up his bed and he walks. And as he walks by these religious leaders, they yell out, Sabbath, Sabbath, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he says to them, the man who healed me, he said, take take up your bed and walk. Now they don't hear or they don't care. The first part of what he said, the man who healed me. They don't hear that. They only hear, oh, somebody told you to take up your bed. Who is it? Who is that man? And then when they, when they confront Jesus, because the man comes back and says it was Jesus, he's the one who healed me, they go and they confront him about the Sabbath. Now, if you read through Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, you're not going to find a specific commandment, you shall not pick up your bed on the Sabbath. This was their law. It wasn't lawful because they had said it's not lawful. Now, the reason they did that is they wanted to make sure that we don't accidentally fall into work on the Sabbath. So let's make sure that we rule out these 400 things lest we do this one thing. But they, they missed that the one in their midst, even as he said, I'm working. I'm the one that brings rest and restoration. They missed the healing of this man. They missed the salvation of this man. They missed that the one who brings true Sabbath was, was with them. And so they remained in the unrest of their legalism. And there may be a temptation for us, as we seek to follow Christ, to fall into the unrest of legalism. And we forget that the one we obey, the one who commands us, is the one who has healed us, the one who has restored us. We obey our Savior. And they were just concerned with, it's not lawful, it's not lawful. But we say, no, the one who healed us, the one who saved us. And we need to be mindful, too, as we are sharing the gospel and we are, we are declaring our Christian witness, that it doesn't turn into, well, we, we, we believe this. You know, this is the right morals. This is the right ethics. We've got the right political perspective. We've got the right economics. This is Christianity. This is what's lawful. Now, that's all there. Scripture speaks to all those areas, and we, we abide by those things. We declare them. We obey them. But we say, this is what the Savior says. It's the Savior, the one who heals. We obey him. We follow him. And I want to conclude just by reminding us of what we read in Psalm 23. Because we read in verse 3, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Our Lord, the Good Shepherd, leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Apostle Paul says that we have been saved, that we might live godly and upright lives in the world. So yes, he does lead us in paths of righteousness. We follow his word. We keep his commands. We obey him. Yes, he leads us in paths of righteousness. But that's verse 3 of the psalm. Notice how the psalm begins. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Notice that. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He brings me to the pastures. He lays me down. He gives me rest. He leads me beside still waters. Then he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, we obey God's word. And we abide in his rest and we abide in the green pastures and we are led by still waters as we obey his voice and follow him. But he's the one who has restored our soul. That's why we can sin no more. That's why we repent. That's why we follow him in obedience and in faith. And this Sunday evening, we're reminded that the one we follow is the one who has worked Sabbath, the one who has restored us, who has given us rest, who makes us to lie down in green pastures. And then as we read on in that psalm, remember, he he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints us with oil. Our cup overflows. And so here this Sunday, as every Sunday, we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table. And here in this bread and this cup, we're reminded that he's the one who has restored us. He's the one that gives us rest. It's in him that we have life. It's him that has forgiven our sins. And so we come now hearing the command, sin no more. And we come to this table and we're reminded that our Lord has called us to sin no more because he's released us, he's forgiven us of our sins.